Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, covering immigration at a time of big data. As these immigration raids continue across the country, reporters of all stripes are sort of struggling to figure out how to approach the story, how to get into the story, how to tackle the subject. This week, there's a completely fascinating piece in the New York Times Magazine about how a group of ICE agents in Washington state are using data to track down people and arrest them. Thrilled to be joined by the writer of that piece, Mackenzie Funk. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks. It was a fantastic piece. It was really eye-opening to me. I'd read a lot about this immigration crackdown, but I hadn't read this part of it. Tell me how you came to this story. I was working on a, a book about data, still am. And in 2017, I want to say, a story by a, a writer named George Joseph, who's now at WNYC. And it was about ICE's use of data. Uh, around that same time, I got a subscription to a government procurement database, and I saw that ICE was buying quite a bit of, of some products I was surprised at, namely uh, Clear from Thomson Reuters. Right. So, And those are private companies that scrape government data or all kinds of data? All kinds. Right. They are built on a base of public records, though. Yeah. Now, this was, it was amazing, the extent of the information that's out there. It sort of reminded, reminded me of this. Do you remember this Wired piece of a few years ago with a guy who tried to disappear? Evan Ratliff. Yeah. Evan Ratliff, yeah. Mm-hmm. It sort of reminded me of that. I mean, these ICE agents, according to your piece, basically be randomly type in people's license plates num- numbers as they drove down the street to see what kind of hits they could get to help them decide who to go after. The second part of it is I knew that ICE was using this stuff, but I didn't really have a place to see how it was being put into practice. So I heard later there was a Seattle Times article about the Long Beach Peninsula and Pacific County in southern Washington, where there's this grand mystery of how are they how are they targeting very specific people? Why are they going after this person but not this person? Mm-hmm. And and really how it was just no one could figure it out. And yet it was clear they knew who they were going after well in advance. And so that was... I tried to put those two sides together, and yeah, license plates were a big part of it. When the agents would show, I knew your story focused on two agents in particular who had this kind of amazing, I guess it's amazing sort of volume of arrests. And they would show up, and they would know so much about the people when they when they showed up. And the way that you wanted to, went about telling the story is to kind of try to sort of reverse engineer mm-hmm. how they learn this. Give us a sense of the range of information they would have on people when they would show up. Well, the the arrest that really caught my attention was one where mom was selling a pinata on Facebook. It was a private Facebook group, and she'd put a pinata that she and her daughters had made up for sale for $20, and nobody went for it for three weeks or so, and then someone responded to her ad. So she went to go meet the people, and it was ICE. So there you can see that they had Facebook profiles. When they got when she got there, she they showed her a printout of her driver's license. Washington gives driver's licenses to undocumented people, as do about a dozen other states. Through Clear and other products like that, they will have addresses. They'll have probably your email address, social usernames, because of your utility bills, any any court cases you've had, even civil cell phone numbers. And and one of the ironies of your piece is that the more ingrained in your community you are, the easier you are to target. In other words, if you're living completely in the shadows, you're not going to get nabbed. But if you, you have a job, if you pay your bills, if you have a car, if you have insurance, that makes you much more likely to get 
Yeah, there target. was a there was a man who was a, a grandfather who lived on this peninsula for about 20 years, and he and his family, you know, undocumented is not a great term for people like him because they had records of everything. And I saw I saw them. I saw their tax returns from years back. You can track people through their ITINs, or at least that was one of the things that ICE was looking for from Thomson Reuters. ITIN being like a, a social security number that people mm-hmm. can use if they don't have one mm-hmm. to pay taxes. And so the yeah, you register your car. You're you're more of a sitting duck. You you have a driver's license. You have insurance. You have a cell phone. You have a social media username. Any of that stuff makes it easier for you to find. So it really is up to the individual ICE agents to decide how to prioritize at this point because the top of the government isn't doing it. it was it your sense that these particular agents who were particularly aggressive that you focused on were an out were outliers at all, or that were they typical of the way ICE is now doing this? I think it's important to realize that even as as many people as they got, they were still targeting people specifically, and they were prioritizing. They've had some what you would call collateral arrests, where they go looking for someone and, and find someone else. But for the most part, they're working down a list of people they can deport quickly, and that's because they might have had a prior deportation on their record, and so they can kind of skip the court process, which there's a major backlog under Trump. Mm-hmm. And so they were going down a list like that. What's different about them, I think, is the geography of the place. Mm-hmm. and and the fact that there weren't a lot of people with criminal histories, as most of us would understand a criminal history, and people who hadn't spent much time in jail. So by prioritizing people, they were prioritizing people who may have crossed the border and then tried to come back the next day and were caught the first time but not the second. Mm -hmm. And that would put them on the priority list because it's easier to deport, but it's not what you would imagine. So no, I don't know that they're typical, and that's, I think, a matter of geography. Typical is in cities. Yeah, I mean, and one of the the ironies of the piece is that where they lived, Washington State, is what's called a sanctuary city, which is, we, we thought, was supposed to be one of these places that protected people like this. But no, mm-hmm. that, wasn't the, that wasn't the fact, right? Yeah, they, they, they did and they didn't. And sanctuary policies, ICE will, makes a lot of noise about how they used to be able to go into jails and pick people up who were there for a criminal offense. Or courthouses, too, right? Courthouses. But yeah. mostly courthouses is a, is a newer thing. It's jails, really. It's it, these detainer requests, requests where they would say, can you keep so-and-so a little longer than, than you normally would because mm-hmm. we'd like to come pick him up and then deport him. Mm-hmm. And sanctuary policies cut that off. And I says, look, if you cut us off from the jails, where are we going to go? Of course, we're going to go into the neighborhoods. We've got to get people. And you can question the we've got to do this part. But I think there is an argument to be made that these sanctuary policies have had, have that, had that effect, and especially if they didn't also cut off the data flows from the states because Washington was sharing an enormous amount of information with ICE. Mm-hmm. So how long did you spend on this story? It was certainly it was almost a year and a half between the time that I started reporting it and it was published, but there was a lot of downtime waiting in, in the queue. Yeah, There's a lot of news. We're, I'm, I'm really interested in what other reporters can learn from this in terms of how if you're if you're a journalist in whatever city and are trying to figure out what ICE is up to and don't have a year and a half and, and a New York Times budget to do this. What, how And I know that you've on your own website have posted some of the documents that you found and just talk us, give us a sense of the kind of FOIA filing that you did or the kind, you know, if, if somebody approached you and said, like, that's amazing, how do I figure out what the ICE people in my town are doing, a, a journalist, how do you, what, how do you advise them? Yeah, and I've actually had a couple emails with that very question. And I have to say I got lucky. Washington has very open public records laws. Mm-hmm. Where do you live? I live now in Oregon, but I was in Seattle when I reported this. Okay, okay. But what is clear to me is that ICE, a lot of the information they get is from local databases, cities, states. So tons of people are sending FOIAs to ICE itself. 
mm-hmm. that's drawn out. It takes years to get the information back. Hmm. Sometimes it has to be a lawsuit. There are groups in D.C. doing lots of these now, and that's very valuable work, but I don't think it's easy for journalists like, like me or like many others to pull off mm-hmm. on the timescale we need to. City, state, and regional governments are much more helpful. You know, Not all of them want to help ICE. It's uh, not as ultimately. politicized. It's not as politicized, they, yeah. and they're happy to share everything. So we got uh, both a local group of activists, and then later I followed up on some of their requests. I got all of the, the dispatch recordings from the sheriff's office. Is that what came through the ACLU? Part of it, yeah, and, uh-huh. I, and I followed up and did more. Mm-hmm. I, I got all of their contracts at the local sheriff's office of all the data sharing agreements they had with these these national networks. So mm-hmm. once you map out the networks that have connected all these local jurisdictions since 9-11 and their inlets, cop link, links, you know, a lot of them are mentioned in the story. I, I would look at, you can see maps of where they work mm-hmm. uh, once you know what the networks are. And then you can see, okay, well, these, these clearly have agreements with my local police. Vigilant Solutions, now part of Motorola, mm-hmm. clear. And so I did a, a lot of work trying to see who has contracts with which of these local jurisdictions that apply to the story, and then went out. The Voice of San Diego has done similar work. Mm-hmm. For instance, great, great reporting that I, I saw after this mm. that many have. And, and how forthcoming were these private contractors that had a lot of this data? Some relatively forthcoming, some not at all. You know, in the fact-check process, many of them were helpful. They want to make sure we understand that we got it right. Mm-hmm. And so I, I have to say thank you to all of them. And in fact, there was a a mistake in terms of the surveillance of the prisons and, and detention centers, that, that something was available to prisons by this company is not in the detention centers. And so we had to correct that, and I was very grateful to them helping then. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Giant Oak, which works for one branch of ICE called HSI, Homeland Security Investigations, which is more for uh, high crime, cross-border crime, they have been very forthcoming and, and very happy to explain what they are and what they aren't. Mm-hmm. And he wants to make clear, and he's asking me, you know, it, you make it sound as if this is this is Hal, if this is some some machine that just runs on its own. And no, people are very much in the loop, and, and you know, he's happy with his quote, happy to help, happy to be clear, and wants wants me to make be clear that you know people are still behind all this. These are matters of efficiencies, mm-hmm. and and it's not that we've gone fully over to algorithms to figure out who we're going to get and who we're not. It's People are always part of this process, and we might be sped up by these things. And I think it's it's interesting, the lack of friction that I mentioned in the story. Yeah, it's was, so easy to do, and, and and it's so fast. I mean, you mentioned in the piece that these people were, were, fi- you know, were hitting these databases hundreds and hundreds of times. One, one office that covers one part of Washington State and a little bit of Oregon in two years did more than 100,000 searches on this one database, this one driver's license database. Right. I mean, you're doing a book on big data. Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Um, what What's the timing of that? When does that come out? <laughs> I just talked to my editor yesterday. <laughs> um, so we're, we're, we're so trying we to figure it out. We'll get into that. We'll no, we'll, we're, we're, no, but we're, uh, <laughs> it, it's due, it's due, I think, at the end of this year, and we may push it to the end of next year. So it's going to be out in, in quite a while. So you know a lot about this and are, are learning more, but was the extent of the av- availability of data and the the ease of access, was it eye-opening to you too, or did you already know all this was happening? It was eye-opening. I thought that maybe they were using one or... Because I knew that they had, that ICE itself had contracts with some of these brokers, data brokers. I knew that some of these data brokers had contracts with other data brokers, such as Vigilant Solutions, which has all the license plate scans, so you can sort of track historically where people are. But I was still shocked at how much they used these local... Mm-hmm. government databases. And that was something I didn't fully know. And how there are these 
very little discussed databases. Links is one that I just mentioned that that connects hundreds, if not now thousands, of local police jurisdictions where they're sharing all these reports with one another. And and it's just very little discussed. You know, it's, that's a Northrop Grumman and a Naval Intelligence Service project that's mm. it's been around since 9-11. Some of these things, you go to these little, you know, I go to this little sheriff's department in this little town, and I say, hey, do you have any agreements with this? And they're like, oh, yeah. And they pull out these documents from the, you know, from 2006. Mm-hmm. And you see that these things have just sort of been running in the background. And, you know, it was maybe done under a previous sheriff or uh, same with the town of Long Beach, previous police chief. They didn't even know what agreements they had. And yet their information seemed to be flowing out and in. You know, they're, everyone's sharing to a degree on a local level that had not really mm-hmm. happened before 9-11. You know, we talked about connecting the dots. Right. And we have. And so there, there's the social media story, of course. And that's that's more obvious. Yeah. But the degree to which pretty intimate details of people's lives, both from such databases as those and and ones that are, you know, utility records and deeds in court cases. That's that's old stuff, but it's just so pervasive. It's mm-hmm. you know, we, we forget about how these privacy fights have that seemed like a really big deal in the late nineties mm-hmm. and early two thousands and it just doesn't anymore. Now we're talking about Facebook. Yeah, you know, if I did this, the first thing I would do would be to put my own name in this thing. Did you do that? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, and no. and where did you find things that you were surprised that that were available? Yeah, I've done, I've gotten in into the credit of Thomson Reuters, Clear and uh, Accurate, which is a rifle product from LexisNexis. Both let you get your own report. Uh huh. And I was shocked that they had my best friend's name, wow. his wife's name. Wow. Uh, How did they make that link through social I don't, media? I don't know. I think that I'm guessing that he and I applied for visas. Uh-huh. Uh, to foreign countries or maybe passports when we traveled in Asia in the ni- in the 90s together. It was wow. something, I mean, his whole family. They had my, my brother-in-law's wife and therefore her sister and mom. Uh, little things. I mean, it was, it, was, it was largely accurate. There were a couple, you know, there was some noise. But uh-huh. for the most part, they had a really remarkable thing. If you wanted to track me down, which is what these are built to do, mm-hmm. they've got many of the people who are important in my life. Mm-hmm. If I were hiding out, they, they have those people. Mm-hmm. And that was what was remarkable about it. They didn't have things like, you know, what kind of washing machine does he have? Because that's not relevant. But did they know, was it easy to sort of deduce what your interests were? Or or is it all just the people connections and the these, stuff? These products, no. I've done the, the same for with Axiom, which is another big data broker. And that does that is easier to deduce what, what interests a person has. And, and there are others. Yeah, they, you know, everyone's now been downloading their, their Facebook data. That's easy to deduce as well. This but is the, terrifying. Yeah, yeah, but the marketing ones are the the equivalent. But these are these are investigative products. These are built for people to track down other people. Yeah, and they don't they don't have noise like that. On the other hand, they've got they've got emails. You know, in the case of one of the one of the people I focused on, they had his emails from various websites that that he'd signed up for in the nineties. Yeah. You know. In doing this, you, I mean, you've been very gracious in in citing other news outlets who have done work on the, in this area. But what is your sense of the Generally, how much the the American press has their arms around this immigration story right now in terms of what's going on in the roundups and what's going on in these communities? Yeah, I, I don't think we've done a great job, actually. And and I think that's in part because we focus so much on, you know, we conflate all these things. Like the abolish ICE thing came out mm. when we, you know, had the family separation stuff, which wasn't really an ICE policy. So I think people don't understand exactly how the how this all works mm-hmm. and that includes journalists 
like me until until recently. And so I, I don't think we've done a great job of talking about why some of this stuff isn't scary for the people being rounded up, but also for democracy and for each of us. And, and maybe so, for journalists at some yeah, point. Yeah, I mean, it's this stuff is flip a switch and it, and you can choose who to target. That's the, that's the point. Yeah. And the more American your life, the easier it is. Mac Funk, it was a great piece. Right, thank you. Um, thanks for coming in. You can read his piece in the New York Times Magazine. Is it this coming weekend? I get confused on the dates. <laughs> it of this just thing. came out yesterday or two days ago. But it'll be on sun- in Sunday's newspaper. Uh, it was already in Sunday's newspaper, okay. so it'll be. Whatever. You can get it online. Um, <laughs> and read CJR.org to find out what's going on in the world of journalism and subscribe to our newsletter, The Media Today. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.